so October 27th, we finally, a church under construction, we finally are at a place, I think, where we can actually have our first formal members who call themselves part of the body, um, who, who will proclaim and actively say, yes, this is our church family, and this church family we want to hold um, each other accountable, point each other to Jesus, all of those things. And so that's on October 27th. Um, we've been doing some memberships. If you have signed up, uh, in some interviews, if you have signed up, um, I will contact you. If you've got questions about that, come and talk to me, okay? And um, we'll pursue that as well. And then finally, um, would you pray? Uh, Jesus has not only called us to make disciples in Turkey um, and around the globe, but right here. And would you join me in praying for three individuals in, that God has placed in your life that needs to know about Jesus? And I think we all can do that, pray for three individuals. And, and then the challenge is to sit down and, and have a meal or a coffee with one and, and, and tell them about Jesus. But let's be a people who are on mission for, with, for Christ. Ecclesiastes 3, Trish already read it. Back when I was, I believe, in grade school, I think, I'm trying to remember, that's a while ago, I went to what probably was one of my first weddings. It was one of my, one of my cousins, older cousin. And um, for whatever reason, she or her, or, or they chose Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8 for their wedding passage. At that point, I couldn't figure out why. And I still don't know why, and I, and I wish I could go back and, and ask why, but I, I can't. But when we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, you can divide it into three nice, neatly, nice neat sections. And, and, and the first section, those first eight verses, is a piece of beautiful poetry. It's actually a kind of, we, we could title it a quaint piece of poetry, verses 1 through 8. It's a piece of poetry I've heard in all kinds of contexts. When I was in um, uh, pastoring in rural Alberta, um, we, I pastored in, in, in the church that had the largest building in town. And so that building was used often by everybody for their funerals. And it was in that context that um, other pastors would actually preach in that context. And we saw the United Church pastor often would do a funeral. And every time she did, I began to realize, every time she officiated a funeral, she would quote Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 1 through 8. It's a quaint piece of poetry. And as she read it, it's, it seemed to be comforting in some, in some sense. Now she read it, as I began to realize, through a very pagan worldview. Kind of what I would call a Lion King look at the world. Everything was about the circles of life, the cycles of life. And, and this passage just simply talked about there's a time to be born and a time to die, and we all go through these cycles. And, 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 and then she would conclude her whole service with this idea that all of us somehow will get absorbed into a better place. Now I often wondered what she would do if she had to do Hitler's funeral. 
But that's how she concluded every one. There was this, we're all wrapped up in the circle of life and we're all going to the same place. And it didn't matter if it was Willie the town drunk or, or Fred the businessman that was always cheating on his wife. They, 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 they all were going to the same place. The circles of life. And she would use this passage. Now, I remember the song. I even have the song in my head. I don't remember when it became a hit song. I was only a year old. But the birds, turn, turn, turn. They quote this, this verses 1 through 8. It's a quaint little piece of poetry. And somehow that song brought great comfort to a generation that feared we were all going to blow each other up. It became a rally cry to stop or end the Vietnam War. I was trying to figure out as I was putting this passage, uh, putting this uh, sermon together, I wonder what caused them to write it. And I realized the birds didn't write it. A guy, a folk singer named Peter Seeger wrote it in the 50s. He actually put it out as a folk song in 59. Somebody asked him why he wrote it, and he simply wrote it like this. He, he actually... He actually saw this passage not through a pagan worldview, but through a a naturalistic or evolutionary worldview. And he explained, he says, you know what? There was a time in our history when we were called to kill. He says, the only reason any of us are here is because our ancestors, they they killed really well, and, and now we're here. The survival of the fittest. And then he said, now it's time for us to sit in a circle. And to communicate with each other because now it's a time for peace. And I thought it was strange that it was up to him to tell us that this was the time, but that's what he said it was. But he never gave any reasoning or any certainty of why we should do this or how even gathering in a circle would stop us from blowing each other up. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, 1 through 8 is a quaint piece of poetry. But is it really? All of these events, these opposites, there's, there's 14 opposites, so to speak, as Solomon is unpacking what life is all about, the events in life, the times in life, the occasions in life, And it seems that all of these things are thrust upon us. We don't determine when we're going to be born. But we really don't determine when we're going to die. Do we really determine when it's a time to weep? If you haven't already, you will. Some, you're going to get a call. Somebody that you love is going to come down with some type of sickness that's going to be terminal. And there'll be a time to weep. A time to mourn. If you guys have been around long enough, you, you'd probably you'd remember back in July when our dear friends lost their 27-year-old son. He died in his sleep unexpectedly. Two weeks two weeks before his son would be born. And that family was grieving, not for the first time, but for the second time, as a second child they had lost. And, and, and I just was like, 
I didn't get it, but that was thrust upon them. Hours earlier, they were talking to their son and wishing him happy birthday. How about war? A time for war, a time for peace. Man, we've been blessed. My age has been really blessed in a world of, of, of peace. But I remember vividly September 11th, 2001. I was in North Calgary. Uh, we had our day planned. We had our week planned. Lynn was actually going to take, was going to get away with a friend. She was going to go for a retreat in Kananaskis. I was somehow going to take care of the three kids that we had. I was still trying to figure out how I was going to do that, but we, we were preparing. The basement was a mess because we had some people in that they were mudding and, and drywalling and all of that as we were finishing off our basement downstairs. And somebody says, hey, did you watch the news? We turn on the TV upstairs in our chaotic uh, house because everything was upside down because of what we were doing in the basement. And we turned on CNN and we saw the planes over and over and over again come into the, into the tower. Over 3,000 people died that day. They were just going out to do what they were going to do, what they normally do. And suddenly, it, this city, this city, uh, thousands of miles away from New York City, was, was, there was just, there's just like a hovering of uh, sorrow. War was suddenly a reality, and it was thrust upon us. In some sense, verses 1 through 8 is a quaint piece of poetry, but when we look at it a little closer, it's like, it fits with everything else we've been reading in Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, life is short, life we can't, we can't hang on to it, or it's a chasing after the wind. And he's just painting another picture, and he's using the language of time. And our author, I think, very creatively and very vividly brings that out for us. But then we get to verses 9 through 15, and, and we could title this section, A Life in the Content Text of a Creator. You see, I wish that that pastor, that she didn't stop reading at verse 8, but that she kept on reading verses 9 through 15. It's always important, no matter what kind of literature we have, to read, read a passage in its context, in its historical context, in, its, uh, in the, the context of the language in which it was written, and in the context of where it's sitting. So what, what happened before and what happened after? What is the author talking about? Verses 9 through 15 is so incredibly important. Verse 9, let's just walk through that. What gain has a worker from his toil? Haven't we heard that already? Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 3. After the, 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 uh, the writer says, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Verse 3, what does man gain by the toil of which he toils under the sun? What's the point of it all? And our author simply says, looking at, looking at the cycles of life or the, the occasions of life or the times of life, he says, what gain is the worker from his toil? At the end, we still die. He's bringing back this theme. It's pointless. And then in verse 10, I have seen the business or the work that the God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He, he introduces God into the context. Verse 10. He did that in verse 24 of chapter 2. There is nothing perfect. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. 
our work is a gift from God. That's what he's saying. Verse 11. He makes a striking comment. He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. It, it could be translated, he's made everything good in its time. Or, But the point is, he's made everything beautiful in its time. What's he talking about? War is good in its time? One writer says, what our, what, our, what our author is saying is, there is another actor in human history, and his name is God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And, and, he's, and he's beautifully fitting everything together. Our author just simply says it. And then he makes another point in verse 11. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, duration into man's heart. I find it fascinating. If you think back to that song the birds sang, Peter Seeger, uh, from everything he said, he's, he's a naturalist. So when he's finished, when he dies, he's gone now. In his mind, that's it. And yet there was this compulsion and this desire to see, to see the world continue. And, and he wanted, I think, I think a good thing, he wanted this world to endure and to be permanent and, and not end. And he wanted to be part of that. My, my question to him is, why? If this is all there is and, and then we're going to die, what, 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 what matters if we're here tomorrow or not? I think if all humanity is honest, we'd recognize that within us there's desire to endure. There's this, this desire for permanence. There's desire to leave a legacy. There's the, there's the desire for something like this. And, and Solomon just simply admits it. He, God, has put eternity into man's heart. But, yet, look at verse 11. Yet, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Our problem is we don't have the big picture. There's this desire to endure. There's a desire for eternity. And yet, we don't have the big picture. And so, we can't make sense of what's going on. I think the best way to illustrate this, if you have children or you have young people in your life, every good parent's going to say no at some point. Because we have the bigger picture. We, we know that endless amounts of candy is not a good thing. And so we will say no. It's wise, it's good, we have a bigger picture, we understand. And, 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 and the picture here is we have eternity in our heart, and yet we, we don't know the beginning from the end, but God has, does, is the point. In verse 12, 
he says, I perceive. That's the that's first time, and he'll say it again in verse 14, I perceived. In other words, it's, it's a little stronger than that. It's, it's not simply that he, he gets it or he, he understands, but he says, I know. From, from my observations, I know this to be true. He doesn't tell us how he knows, but in verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. And also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. This is similar to what we read, that ray of sunshine that we read in chapter 2, verses 24 and following. He says, he says I, I know it's good for just for us to be, be, to be filled with joy, to do good things, to eat and drink and take pleasure in it. This is good. Again, when you get that phone call or you get that news that, that somebody you love has got terminal, terminal uh, ish, health issues, well, that changes everything. But the author is just simply telling us, but enjoy today. Give thanks today. Lynn and I had the incredible privilege on Friday to go to the mountains. What a beautiful day it was. We drove out. The mountains were like just like stunningly right there. I guess I think it's something with the 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 the, the snow on them. They're snow capped. It's just like oh, it's just beautiful. We had lunch. We walked around Canmore for uh, maybe one loop. We weren't dressed for the the weather, so we just quick one loop. Drove to Banff to her tea place and drove home. That's all we did. But what a gift to have a day off and spend it with my wife. It's an incredible gift. We had Friday. I don't know if we'll have Monday, but we had Friday. Our author just simply says, I perceive that there's nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. You say, well, I'm not married. Well, well, our singleness is a gift. That's what Paul says. Well, whatever setting or situation we're in, it's, 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 God says this is a gift. Our work is a gift. This morning I woke up at 5.30 to, 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 to work and, and kind of finalize some things for today. What a gift to be able to get up and to work and be able to open, open up God's Word. What a gift. That's what he says. Now, in verse 14, he, he carries on. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. He doesn't tell us how he understands that or knows that. He just simply states a fact. And that's, that's interesting. We don't endure forever. Born, die. Born, die. Born, die. God, whatever he does, endures forever. He's trying to make a contrast. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. The reason that God does all these things is so that we might fear him, that we might acknowledge that he exists. That we might live with the reality that someday he will judge. You see, verses 1 through 8, if we don't understand it in the context that there is life as a creator, we really miss his point. 
our author doesn't stop there. Our author continues in verses 16 to the end. And I'm just going to very quickly go. In that context, we see that God is in complete control and judgment is coming. There's a reality called death and he brings it back up. He wants, it's like our author wants to slap us in the face. I think there's probably never been a generation or a time period in history where we have tried to hide death as much as we do today. My father says that when, when, um, when there was death, as they, when they were children, they would prepare the body and the body would be left in the house laying on the table. And the whole family would, 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 would touch the person that had died and would, for, for, for a period of time, and as long as it was possible, and the neighbors would come and go. We hide it. We, we, we hide the reality of death. But, but our author wants us to recognize that death is, is very real. He brings it up again. Verse 20, all go to one place. All, from, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. And in verse 21, it seems like he's confused. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. He goes, well, does he not understand what happens to the human soul? Uh, Solomon is not going there. He's simply telling us that we're going to die. But in that context, he says in verse 16, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness even there was wickedness. Have you ever seen that? You turn on the news and you, and you find somebody who, who's a, a killer and gets off scot-free. And we're horrified. Nothing's really changed. Solomon says, I, I've experienced this. I've witnessed this. And then in verse 17, he said, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. God sets a time. There will be justice. And so we got this chapter 3. There's a time for everything. And... and and these, these times and these seasons aren't just simply thrown at us uh, willy-nilly, but they're, 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 they come to us in the context of a God who created the heavens and the universe, a God who is in charge of all things, a God who makes everything beautiful in its time, a God who puts things and fits things together beautifully. It's even our pain, even our pain. What do we do with all this? Solomon doesn't seek to prove these things. Solomon doesn't even think, even seek to explain them fully. I think the rest of the book does. The book, the scriptures. Think of the Psalms, chapter 2. The early church quoted this often. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. 
The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Psalm 2 tells us that God is in charge. Nebuchadnezzar comes along and God puts him in his place. Alexander the Great comes along and his kingdom falls. The Romans come, Julius Caesar and all the other Caesars, and eventually they're gone. The Hitlers and the Stalins and the Maos and even, even the democracies rise and they fall. At the end of the day, he who sits in the heavens laughs. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God is in charge. God will judge. Daniel chapter 7, you don't need to turn there, but it's just this, this vision that Daniel has, and, and it's a picture of these kingdoms rising and falling, rising and falling, rising and falling, and it comes to an end, and there is an everlasting kingdom that God will set up. And it will not end. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus shows up on the scene. Listen to what Jesus, how he starts in Mark chapter 1. Verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Listen to what he proclaimed. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus, the king, was in our midst. So Jesus says repent and believe in the gospel. Apostle Paul, several decades later, says in Galatians chapter 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that that we might receive adoption of sons. Solomon doesn't answer that question. He just simply challenges us to trust in this everlasting God who, who, who beautifully fits everything together. In his time. And Jesus comes and says, the time is fulfilled. And Paul says, says at the, at the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. At the perfect time, God sends Jesus to die on our behalf, to rise from the dead so that we might receive adoption as sons. Paul will later say in 1 Corinthians 4, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring, bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his condemnation, his commendation from God. Or as Acts chapter 3, the apostle says, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke. Not only was it a time for Jesus to come, to pay our penalty, to conquer death. But the apostles talk about a time that is coming when Jesus will come to judge as king. A time that is coming when Jesus, when Jesus will restore all things to himself. Make everything right. That's what Solomon was anticipating. Looking forward to That's what the Scriptures point to. You see, Ecclesiastes, our author, simply says, 
He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, as he put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And I went downstairs that July morning to greet my, my friends who had just heard the news that their son had died. And the one was on the phone, the one of the girls was on the phone to, to, to make arrangements so they could fly to, 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 to Ottawa so that they could be at their son's funeral and their brother's funeral. And I was waking up, it was 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, trying to get the cobwebs out of my head and going down those steps thinking, they already lost one. This can't be true. They, 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 Lord, why? What, what's going on? I don't understand. I don't get it. I, it doesn't make any sense to me. Solomon says there's a time for everything. Solomon tells us that God is the one who made everything beautiful it's in, in its time. God is the one who understands the beginning from the end. We're children. We don't. Jesus says that his kingdom is, uh, is at hand because he, the king, has showed up and we're to repent and believe in the gospel. Paul says that the fullness of time came when God sent his son to die on our behalf, to pay our penalty. The apostles tell us that this Jesus is coming back to judge and make everything right, just like Solomon said would happen. And, 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 and the apostles tell us very clearly that, that when Christ comes on that, at that moment that is appointed, until that time for restoring all things, this Jesus will restore all things. So what do we do with this? What, what do we actually do with this? There's a hint in Ecclesiastes 3. Verse 12, I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to, to be joyful. It's not just that simply we're called to, to uh, eat, drink, and be merry. Verse 12, we're to be joyful and do good. I think of 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, which he will display at the proper time. In light of what we just heard, we have the privilege to do good, to obey our God, to live in, in, in that kind of light. But, but there's more. We're not only called to do good, we're, we're, I, think, I think we should be encouraged. The Apostle Paul, I think, unpacks Romans, Ecclesiastes, just in a few verses. We've already talked about this uh, a little bit in chapter 8. The creation itself was uh, under bondage. It was um, subjected to futility. But I've got it on the overhead behind me. Romans chapter 8, 28. I want to read all of this. Listen. And we know. And we know. That, the, that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We know that, that God is beautifully fitting everything together because of who He is. 
because he has said so. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. Those he knew in, the, in eternity past, Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the earth was created. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He made a decision that he was going to make them like his son. If you're a child of God, if you've been called by God, if you've placed your faith in this Jesus, this is true. You can know that all things work together for good. And what's he doing? He, he, in eternity past, he knew you. He predestined you. But he predestined you that you might become like his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers so that we might be adopted, that we might be part of the family. He goes on in verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And, and those whom he called, he also justified. In other words, he declared us righteous. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Past tense. Meaning, we'll be with him. Then in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is true for my friend who's lost two children. Let me read that again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is true for you if you, if, if you are a follower of God, if you're a child of God, God has called you, you love the Lord. And you get that phone call and it's the one you love the most. He's got an illness at his terminal. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Your sickness might be against us. War might be against us. The, 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 the nations of the world might be against us. You might be living in a country like Turkey and you, and you can't even wear a cross around your neck. You're going to lose your job because you're very Christian. And, and Paul says, then, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How do we know that? Because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Well, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? No. Or distress? No. Or persecution? Uh-uh. Or famine? Uh-uh. Nakedness? No. Danger? No. Sword? No. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors. He doesn't say these things don't happen to us. He says, but in all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The world you and I live in is broken. We will die. We will suffer in this life. We will go through pain. We will hurt. If things continue as is, we will probably suffer for being Christians. But what will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Of all people, we are the only ones who have a reason to smile at the grave of a loved one. No one else really can. Of all people, we have the ability to laugh in the in the room of a hospital because we know the end. Of all people, when we go through difficulties, we can smile, there can be a joy, we can enjoy what God has blessed us with in front of us. He gave his son. He rose from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. Thank you. Thank you that you loved me, loved us first, most, and best. You loved us back before the creation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1. Lord, thank you. I don't get that. I don't understand that. I can't, I can't package that nice and neatly, but Lord, that's what it says. Thank you. And Lord, I pray that each of us in this room would come to know you in such a way that no matter what life throws at us, no, other, no matter what time we're in, we can be thankful, that we can rejoice, that we could say, nothing shall separate us from the love of you. Lord, help us to be a people that are encouraged because of that, and help us to be a people who live in light of the reality of these truths. Loving our neighbors, loving one another. In your precious name we pray. Amen. As the guys whoops, as the guys lead us in song.